Well, good morning, Living Water. It's good to see you all out this morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 5. When you find that, you'll view it in my standing as I read God's word aloud. We'll be looking at verses 17 through chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. So chapter 5, verse 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. Picking up with verse 17, we find the words, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on the hands or laying off hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of men are conspicuous, of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves <clears throat> regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that in the name, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be, be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must um, serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for another opportunity to be uh, one of the men who have a chance to share your word uh, with this local body of believers. Uh, this is a gift from you. Uh, this morning, Lord, I want to confess that I am uh, tired, uh, my mind's running a little slow, and I am running into just human weakness. Uh, and so I ask, Lord, that uh, by your spirit you would give me strength and clarity of thought as I seek to uh, share what I've learned this week from your word um, to the people who are here and who are listening so that they might know what your will is so that they might live it and do it. Uh, and I pray that the same would be true of my life. We thank you for your goodness and kindness toward us that has been displayed in so many ways. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your church. Would you speak to our hearts now? Uh, would you make your will known to us? And would you forgive us for any sins that we've committed and not confessed? And Father, I also ask that perhaps there might be one who has joined us today who does not know your son. Would you open their heart and mind to see the beauty of Christ and respond appropriately? We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much.
when I was about my son's age and he just finished fifth grade, uh, I attended a church with my parents and my sisters. It was a large Baptist church. Uh, at that time, uh, they probably had about a thousand attendees who were part of the church um, when I was a member during my youth. Uh, the church structure was that we had one pastor. Uh, there were a number of what we might refer to as some as associate pastors or things like that who kind of weren't on staff, but they, they served and helped uh, and did different tasks. Uh, but there was a large deacon board and a number of ministries back then. They were called auxiliaries uh, as part of the church structure. And in, in my culture, from uh, the area that I grew up in, and still, still today in, in the cultural context that I'm from, uh, there was always this desire uh, to honor those who held positions of authority, whether that was in how you addressed a parent, someone who was older than you, and there was always this desire to kind of honor uh, the church leadership, and specifically in this case, uh, the one main pastor of the church. And so uh, our church and our church context and the Baptist church that I was a part of, <clears throat> we had these kind of events that happened on an annual basis, like church anniversary and pastor's anniversary. And on pastor's anniversary, the church would seek to give him a gift that he didn't know about um, during, that, during that period of time uh, when it was pastor's anniversary at the church. And there's one particular year that I remember. Uh, now, they had it every year. I don't remember what they gave him the other years, but this year stood out in my mind because of the gift that they gave him. Uh, and <clears throat> the gift that they decided to give him that year was a car, a DeLorean. <laughs> if you're not familiar with that car, if you've ever seen the Back to the Future series, that's the main feature. Now, as a child, uh, about my son's age, you know, when I saw the car and the doors come up, I was highly impressed. <laughs> and all I could think is, I would like to have one of those. Now, you might ask, well, that, that, that sounds a bit extravagant to be giving a pastor for pastor's anniversary in addition to his salary. But you have to realize that it was rooted in their theology and how they understood what the scriptures meant. And they were just seeking to do what they believed scripture was teaching. So the text that we're looking at today that I just read and here it was the very text that they used and that guided their practice uh, in our church context. And they often at this time of year actually read this very passage that we read today as they were preparing to honor the pastor for that year. And when they read the words double honor, they interpreted that to mean double pay. And so because they understood it to mean that and out of obedience to God and because they believed God was commanding it, they felt it was their responsibility to do it. And so pastor's anniversary became the, the time of year where they would heap upon that second honor of pay. And that year, it was a DeLorean. Now, some of that probably had to do with culture and uh, some historical factors that influenced their understanding as well. Today, I'm going to present a different interpretation of the text. I'm going to go a different way than they went, but I believe they exemplified ultimately what God is looking for when it comes to putting this text into practice, and that is how we're to engage those in authority in the church and in the world. Because when you look at Scripture, there is this theme that runs through it that's repeated 
which is that God wants us to honor those who are in authority. Uh, when we worked our way through the book of Romans in chapter 13, we ran into this idea. Let me remind you of it. Paul wrote this just to give you a snippet of it. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, Paul's not the only one to raise this idea. Peter says something similar in one of his letters to the believers when he's writing to them. And he said this, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So there are two groups that are in our past today that I want to focus on that are recipients of honor because they hold positions of authority often in the lives of believers. Now the question I might ask as you start to think about this, how do you treat the people who have authority in your life? How do you treat the people who have authority in your life? So by way of Timothy, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to instruct us on what he believes that the Holy Spirit wants us to do and how God wants us to treat those who are in authority. The first group that we're going to see is found within the context of the church, and I would just simply call this group the elders. The elders. So about five weeks ago, we uh, looked at the text out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we talked about what it takes to be qualified to be an elder. And at that time, I summarized the qualifications into five categories. I don't know if you remember them, but I connected them to the fingers on your hand. Uh, one was your thumb, and it was, hey, listen, uh, the elder needs to stand out and have high moral character. Index finger, uh, the, the elder needs to be a skilled teacher of the word. Middle finger, uh, the elder needs to be a good leader, especially in his home. The ring finger, the elder needs to be a spiritually mature and not a new believer. And lastly, our pinky finger, the elder needs to have a good reputation in the community. And in order to qualify for an elder, a person needs to meet, a man needs to meet those qualifications. Now, Paul's going to guide Timothy in this text on how he wants those who make up the body of believers to treat these elders who are doing their job. And he qualifies it by, says, by saying those who do their job well. And then he also gives us some instructions on how to handle those who have fallen into error. And he gives us three kind of commands in the text. He's actually writing directly to Timothy, so the commands are directed to Timothy, but we're we going to apply them to us in our context. We've run into the first command in verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. Paul commands Timothy, he says, The elders who are doing their job well should receive double honor. And remember, this is a command that Paul is giving to Timothy. And he's also going to notice, if you notice the text, he also highlights a subset of the elders. He says, those who labor in the word and teaching are to be given additional consideration. So what does it mean that an elder should receive double honor? Double honor. Well, as I alluded to earlier, there are various interpretations of this. There are a few options here. We could, uh, like the church that I grew up in, understand that to mean double pay or double honorarium or something like that kind of interpretation. 
Uh, and the idea of, of financial reimbursement is supported in the text, and, and that's a viable interpretation. We see that in several places in the text. From last week when Pastor Mike talked about this in the discussion of widows, the idea of honor has already been raised and been connected with the concept of financial support. The word we find for honor in verse 17 carries with it both the idea of respect and a financial component, which we might categorize a call here in honorarium. Uh, we see the financial side of the word when it is used in other texts throughout the New Testament, such as Acts chapter 5, verse 2, Matthew chapter 27, verse 9, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23. When the word is translated there, it has the financial component as the prominent use of the word. In verse 18, Paul then, to add on, cites Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 24, and then draws from Jesus' tradition, which was preserved for us in Luke chapter 10 verse 7 about those who work deserve a wage. So the financial idea is readily present in the text. Now there's another interpretation, those who do take this to be double honor uh, in the sense of double pay. Uh, another variation on that interpretation is some say, hey, I think what, what, he, what Paul is getting at here is double honor in the sense of double pay in, in the sense of bivocational work. You, you receive honor from being able to have a secular salary at your job, and then you receive a salary at the church. And, and in that way, they're double honored. That's an interpretation that you can take. Another interpretation is on the respect side, and Dr. Yarbrough preserves it when he writes these words. Another possibility is that Paul is simply instructing Timothy to pray for, uphold, and give public recognition to elders thrust into the thankless task of administering relief and associated arduous duties where hard decisions must be made and resources are limited. This support would be letting them be considered worthy of whatever respect is inappropriate to accord them. This is what we might categorize as the respect-only view, respect-only view. But the interpretation that I believe best fits the text that I'm going to advocate for today uh, is captured by Dr. Kostenberger when he writes, Paul now says elders should receive material recognition. They are worthy of double honor. That is both respectful submission and financial remuneration. So in this view, double honor is played out on both sides of the aspect of the word that is translated or glossed in English with honor. On the one side, it is that we are to give to the elders of the church a respectful submission to their authority. And on the other side, it is to give them financial support. We see uh, this idea of respectful submission to authority in places like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. But the financial idea is there as well. So those are the kind of honors, respectful submission and financial support on the other side. Now, I lean toward this interpretation for a number of reasons. I'll give a few here. If you look at the text, we notice that Paul seems to bracket the idea of the meaning of both meanings in the text. Prior to what he's going to use here, he brings in the idea with the widows of honor connected to financial support. And afterwards, when you get to chapter 6, verse 1 and chapter 6, verse 16, he's going to lean toward the other side of the meaning of that word, which uh, prominent puts prominent the idea of respectful Submission. So both ideas are present and they're on both sides 
of the usage of this word in this particular text. Other writings in the New Testament front the idea of, hey, listen, that there is an a respectful submission that is owed in the sense of honor to those who are elders in the church, that we who are in the church should submit to our elders. And so that idea is already present, and it seems that Paul now is raising the other idea about financial support, and he justifies that by quoting from the Old Testament. And then we also have the cultural background in which this, the Bible was written in a context of what we were categorized as a honor-shame society, which meant that honor was a major value for those who were reading the scriptures during this period of history. And those are a few of the reasons why I lean toward this view as opposed to some of the other ones that I have mentioned. So from this understanding or from this interpretation, we understand that God wants us to honor elders who are serving well by respectfully submitting to their authority. So when they make decisions or ask us to do stuff in our Christian life that's in accord with God's word, we do it. And secondly, that the church provides them with financial support so that they may live. Now, I'm going to talk more about this idea of respectful submission when we get to the, the second group. But in order to not have to repeat that idea, I'll put that off until later. Now, now, some who are hearing this and realizing that I'm a person who's on staff serving as an elder and being paid might be thinking to themselves, well, boy, that is quite self-serving of you to be teaching this text. <laughs> so in past, uh, some of my experience in past years have been when pastors have gotten a text like this, what they would do normally is bring in a guest preacher <laughs> so that they're not you know, accused of this uh, and that that's kind of how it would work. But, but let me give two ideas in way of response that, that, that might help us think about this more correctly. I would say that this is no more self-serving than when the Bible teaches that a person who works should be paid. If you think there's a problem in self-serving, then you should also have a problem with you being paid at your job. Because the scripture teaches that concept also, and that would be self-serving. In addition, you must also remember the way that we've addressed the issue. This is not something that we've selected in isolation that we just ran upon to come up with some agenda for ourselves. We're teaching systematically through a book, and we've just encountered this, and we're dealing with it as we come to it. But I can't understand your concern. Ministers and money in certain circles can prove to be a very sensitive topic because there has been abuse. People have read about abuse, they've experienced it, they've watched it, and they've witnessed it. I'll give you a couple examples. So back in 2018, the Washington Post featured an article about tele-evangelist tele Jesse Duplantis. And the reason why they brought him up was because he was asking those who were supporting his ministry to help him raise $54 million dollars so that he could purchase a Falcon 7X private jet to spread the gospel because he didn't want to have to stop to refuel. Now, you have to take into account that his ministry already owns three jets. Now, I don't know what a Falcon 7X is. You'd have to ask Pastor Mike. He's an expert on all planes. I don't, I didn't, when I read that, I was like, okay, 7X, what is that? Who knows? But he could tell you. He can appreciate the value of something like that. But $54 million... That sounds pretty expensive to me. I don't know how big it is. Maybe it's a nice size plane. I don't know. Anyway, 
The following year, the Washington Post wouldn't let the idea go because they ran another article on a different pastor. It was Kenneth Copeland because he had been addressed by Insider Edition in an interview, and they recorded that interview because the reporter was addressing him about the fact that he had just purchased a plane from Tyler Perry. Under the reasoning, it was needed to spread the gospel in the ministry. So the reporter asked him, you know, Mr. Copeland, how would you respond to those who would say that preachers shouldn't live so luxuriously? And here's what he said in response. They're wrong. It's a misunderstanding of the Bible. If you go into the old covenant, do you think the Jewish people believe you should be broke? Now, you probably see some exegetical fallacies there. But it's due to things like this that pastors have done who appear to love money that we can understand why some people outside the church and inside the church say things like, all pastors want is your money. Remember, though, the qualifications for those who serve in leadership of the church. We talked about high moral character, and one of the things that was under that category is that an elder cannot love money. 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. But the misuse and abuse of God's word does not negate God's good commands. Paul said to the church in Corinth, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Instead, what the text does, and by them doing these types of things, it simply indicts them and will stand as evidence again against them on the day of judgment. Now, let's talk about your church where you attend, which is living water, right? Because uh, you're not part of their churches, at least that I know of, unless you're doing double membership. So Living Water has put a wage system in place to obey this command and to protect from abuses by means of checks and balances. So let me explain how that works. So a subset of the elders gets together with our highly capable finance team, and they do the research, they crunch the numbers to provide a living wage for staff members of the church without infringing on ministry goals based on an analysis of giving trends. Now, I can't explain all that to you. You'd have to talk to the finance people. <laughs> in addition to this, we have a process in which every year the budget has to be affirmed by the membership. If the membership does not give the okay, we don't move forward with the budget. In addition to that, if you've been in our Discover class recently, you would know that uh, for those who are financially minded, that we try to have financial transparency in the church. And one of the ways that we do that is that every month outside on that counter right over there is a treasurer's report that tells you what money has come in, how the money has been spent that month, and what is the projected budget. So if you have any questions about what's happening with the money and where it's going, you just simply have to walk out the room, get one of those sheets, and read it. So when you give to support the ministry, as we'll provide an opportunity to do that here in a few moments, you're fulfilling one half of this command. 
There's still the other half that is respectful submission, what I would say is due to elders, but when you give and support the ministry, you're helping to show honor to the elders. Now, Paul goes on here, because serving as a church elder does not come without its challenges. You see this in verses 19 and verse through verse 21. And this is the, the idea that he's getting across. Handle accusations against elders appropriately. See, on the one hand, the leadership and the church need to protect elders from unsubstantiated charges or false accusations. Because being a leader can be a difficult enterprise, even for those who are good elders and who are discharging their duty faithfully, because leaders in any institution, especially church leaders, have to sometimes make very difficult decisions. And elders have often a lot of exposure. And as such, we can become the target of people's frustration, misjudgment, personal biases, or their own grievances. And so in order to mitigate that danger, what Paul says, he draws upon this principle that we find in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 9, 19, verse 15, of things need to be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And this is repeated throughout the New Testament, several passages, Matthew 18, 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1, and Hebrews 10, 28, that says, this is how you protect them. If a charge is brought against an elder, there needs to be sufficient evidence to convict that elder of wrongdoing. Don't let one person who has a personal agenda against an elder have room to be heard. On the other hand, if an elder is found to be guilty of wrongdoing based on legitimate evidence, multiple witnesses, then the leadership needs to call that elder to repentance. And if he does not respond, then he needs to be rebuked openly, publicly in front of the congregation. We draw this from the text. Notice what the text says. Paul says, persisting in sin and the Lord's command of how discipline is to work in the church, drawn from Matthew chapter 18. And depending on the nature of that offense, the elder, if he is found guilty of offense, may need to step down from leadership for a time to repent and then be restored to his position or if it is such a nature that he cannot, then he has to be removed from his position. And Paul says the purpose for handling matters in this way, though it might cause us some consternation, is to help the other elders avoid getting in sin. But Paul goes on to explain that there's a temptation for elders who are having to handle these accusations that we can fall into one of two errors. On the one side... We as elders might hear the evidence from multiple witnesses and immediately come to a conclusion or just hear an accusation and come to a conclusion that this elder's in the wrong. And Paul says, don't do that. That's what he's telling Timothy. Hey, listen, wait and let the evidence play out. Don't make a judgment about an elder until all the evidence is in. And secondly, don't go to the other side of error, which is, I love this elder. He's a wonderful guy. There's no way he could ever do this. Not if the evidence is pointing in the other direction. And to encourage the other, the other elders to do their job, he calls upon the witness of God. He says, God, the Lord Jesus, and the elect angels here, perhaps for referring to those angels who have been selected by God for judgment here, drawing upon an Old Testament concept of divine counsel imagery. He says, God is watching. And you, the other, other elders who are standing in God's place, God is going to hold you accountable. 
because it is your job to represent God in judgment, and God is one who shows no partiality in judging. Now, to reduce, reduce the risk of a church having to engage in such painful proceedings so that this doesn't happen, Paul gives a, a command to Timothy about how to handle this. We see this in verses 20 through 22 through 25. And, it, and it, this is the idea he gets across. Select elders carefully. Select elders carefully. Paul told Timothy not to be hasty in appointing elders and thereby condemn himself as being the person responsible for putting this, era in the, this elder in a position of power and then them ending up sinning in some way that hurts the church. He says he needs to be careful, take his time. And then Paul notes a reality about life, which we're all aware. God knows everyone's heart, but we as humans, we don't. Paul says, listen, here's the reality of how life works. Some people's sins, they're evident. They're doing things that are just publicly, easily visible. You know that they don't qualify for an elder. You just look at their life and you're like, yeah, you shouldn't be an elder. Similarly, on the other side, there are some people's good lives and good works that they do. I mean, you look at the way that they're living and you're like, yeah, yeah, that guy, he should be an elder. But there's this other side that Paul brings out, and this is why you ought to be careful and slow about the process of selecting elders. He says, because there's some people whose sins you can't see on the surface. It might be that they're a prideful person. They have an unhealthy desire to argue. They're a person who's jealous of others. Or they might just be a lover of money. Similarly, there are some people who are quiet servants of the Lord. They're living out their faith. And if you're not careful, you'll miss them. Because their works are not prominent. But they should be an elder, but they might get overlooked because it's not as clear because their works are hidden. So he says, select elders carefully. Take time to figure out who should be leading the church. So how does your church do that? The church that you belong to. So to obey this command, the elders pray over those who are potential candidates. Try to select them from displayed character already. We interview those who would be potential elders and their spouses and other relevant parties. We have those who are going to be potential candidates to become elders go through a year-long training process. And then at the end of that process, we ask the membership, just in case, because our knowledge is limited, to affirm those who are going to serve as elders. It is in that way that we seek to obey what Paul says here. Paul says, if you have elders who are doing well and doing their job well, honor them. We find the second group that we need to show honor to. And I'm going to hear, this is not the place that Paul talks about, but I'm moving it into our current modern environment. I'm going to say the place of employment, place of employment. Here, I'm going to, to limit it, and I'm going to apply it in this way. Honor your boss. I'm just going to say, honor, honor your boss. So let me re revisit what Paul said, just to remind ourselves, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters may, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, whether they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and are beloved. Now, I, I need to be honest with you. When I read the, the text this week, 
I had an emotional aversion to the command in this text. And I had to work through it emotionally this week to be prepared to talk to you about it today. Uh, see, I, some, in my background, I have ancestors who were slaves not that long ago. And so to come to a text and read the words of what Paul is saying, understand what Paul is saying here, is emotionally difficult for me to just embrace right off the surface. And so it takes some time for me to unpack and search out the text and think about what Paul is saying in order to uh, be able to accept it and let alone say, hey, this is how a person is to live. And then you just throw on top of that what's been happening in our culture over the recent years in the political climate as it relates to this topic, and you realize why this is a touchy text. So how should we proceed? Because I, I, I don't think it's right for me to ignore the text. I, I shouldn't skip over it, because if I start skipping over this text, then I'll just continue to skip over texts that feel uncomfortable. This is God's word, and it cannot be ignored. First, uh, in, in the text here, in my Bible, I have slaves here in this ESV and another ESV. They have bond servants. But I like the way the preface of one Bible lays this out and explains their translation philosophy in the, in the, in the preface of the, the Bible. And they explain it this way. Let me, let me read it to you. They say, a particular difficulty is presented when the words in the biblical Hebrew and Greek refer to the ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. Thus is the case with the Hebrew word evet, evet, and the Greek word doulos, terms which are often rendered as slave. These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that requires a range of renderings. And here they give you several options, a slave, bond, serpent, servant, and it's depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations which with often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in the 19th century America. For this reason, the ESV translates the words ivet and doulos, which has been undertaken with a particular attention to the meaning and specific context. So they look at the word and say, look at the context around it and say, yeah, we think this is the best way to translate it. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery involuntarily, either voluntarily, to escape poverty or to pay off a debt, or involuntarily, sorry, uh, by birth, being captured in battle, or because of a judicial sentence. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic law, including specific provisions for release from slavery. So in New Testament times, a doulos, which is often best translated as a bond servant, that is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve as master for seven years, unless you're in the house of Caesar, then you had to serve 14 years. When the contract expired the, expired, the person was freed and then given his wage that the master should have saved up and officially declared as a freedman. So the ESV usage thus seeks to express the most fitting nuance of the meaning in this context, where absolute ownership by master is envisaged, envisaged such as in Romans 6, the word slave is used. Where there is more of a limited servitude, bond servant is used. And where there is a wide range of freedom, the word servant is used. Here's the point, just in case you didn't follow any of that. Slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire had some substantial differences than slavery in the 18th and 19th century of America. Now, one author that I ran across who did an extensive research article, and I can't tell you the amount of resources that he looked at, and when as I was reading through his article, but he, he kind of summarized 13 main differences between the institutions. I'm just going to put it up on the screen. You can kind of look through them and see 
kind of how there is some differences between the two as he mined these resources, uh, ancient resources and modern resources. And I added one category at the bottom that others ha have brought out. Now, there are substantial differences because the institutions functioned differently, but there are still similarities when it had to do with sinful behavior. There were still the same kinds of abuses in both institutions. Masters who were opportunistic took advantage of women and children in a variety of ways. Bond servants, slaves, servants were at times beaten. Sometimes they were killed for trivial matters such as dropping a cup. Now, one of the things that stood out in my reading that shows that this is a different circumstance or a different organizational structure than uh, what was happening in America in the past was what was happening in society. And here's one of the things that really stood out. Free people, if they were poor, would sometimes sell themselves into slavery intentionally to improve their station in life. Because slavery, depending on who you became a slave to, could improve the job you had and your station and position in the world. And so people engaged in that practice. Now, this topic of slavery is highly important on the apologetic side, if you didn't know that. Atheists use the topic of slavery to disprove the divine inspiration of the Bible. And that is something that they argue. And so for us as believers, we need to know how the Bible and slavery relate together because atheists are leveling this as evidence for their position of why the book that you hold in your hands is just another book of history and you should stop believing it the way that you do. Now, there's four more that needs to be said, but today is not the time to do that because that's not Paul's main point. The point that I want to bring out here is that what was going on in Paul's day was different than the experience of what was going on in America. Not that there weren't similar abuses. You give people who are sinful power over others, and the same kind of abuses generally show up. But there are some major differences in the institutions. So to understand Paul's command to the church at Corinth, let me draw upon another first century writer who leads into the early second century, which was a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. And he talks about this idea of what's going on in the behaviors of slaves and freedmen who were clients of people who were in power. He said this, the very freedman or slave was often an actual terror to his patron or master whom he would menace by word and by gesture. Now, he doesn't get into what kind of gestures and words they were saying, but it was obviously something that was disrespectful. And this may have been the case of what was happening with believers who were part of the church at Ephesus. And so Paul calls these bondservants, slaves, freedmen who are clients of others to honor their masters, especially those who are Christians, and might have been sitting right next to them in church. And honor in this case looks like respect in the way that the slaves or bondservants addressed their masters and acted in relation to their masters. And it also meant that they should obey what their masters were asking them to do and work faithfully, as Paul says in another place, not as if they were working for a human master, but if they were working for the Lord. And then he goes on to say, if your master was a believer, so much so, much more, you should work harder for them because the one who's benefiting was a brother or sister in Christ. We see the same idea raised in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 and 9, however there Paul does address the masters as well. Now Paul's 
context of this master-slave relationship or bond-servant, however you want to render that there, does not map directly onto our context of employer-employee relationship. But, but I'm going to use that because that's the closest of what we have in relationship. There, there are some key differences. One is that in an employer-employee relationship, you're dealing with two, dealing with two free people. So a boss in our lives, if we have a boss, because some of you in this room are retired, others own your own businesses, so this won't apply to you. You are not in that situation anymore. Uh, but for those who are, if you have a boss, then honor is due to them. And that has to do with how we talk to them, how we talk about them, and how we respond to them when they ask us to do something. And what scripture is commanding of you as an employee who has someone in authority and supervision over you, you ought to be respectful in the way that you engage them. And we should do to seek to do the things that they ask us to do if what they're asking you to do is not sinful and you have the ability to do it. Let me give you a couple examples here real quick of how this plays out in a church context. So on Sunday, you might not know this, but Pastor Mike has asked the staff to park downstairs in the lower lot to free up spaces in the upper lot. And each Sunday morning, early in the morning when we first get here, all the staff members, we obey Pastor Mike because he has a position of authority over us and we do what he's asked us to do. So we park downstairs in the lower lot. Let me give you an illustration of how this plays out in another way that's different in an employee-employee relationship. Sometimes I go to Miss Eleanor, and if you guys know Miss Eleanor, I put a lot on Miss Eleanor. She does a lot for me. So there sometimes I come to Miss Eleanor and I'm like, I have another thing for you. Miss Eleanor says to me in response, my plate is full. <laughs> I'm not able to do what you already, what you asked me to do. And she shows me the list and she said, and that too. So what do you want me to do? And then I adjust accordingly. And that's kind of how it plays out. And that's one of the differences about being an employee, employee relationship. We ought, we ought to be obedient and seek to do that. We ought to be diligent workers. And especially if you know that your boss is a Christian like you, you ought to work the harder for them. You ought to seek to honor them in that way. And I would ask, are you praying for the person who has authority over you in your place of employment? Are you praying for them? Now, Paul gives the reason here, and we'll close with this. Notice what he says in the text. It is for the sake of the gospel. See, our witness in a place of employment can either enhance or hamper our testimony when God opens the door for us to share about our faith. It is hard to testify to people that Jesus who died for their sins and was raised from the dead, who has the authority to forgive their sins and give them the power to live differently. For that message to be heard and accepted, if you are a person who has a bad attitude at work, you're dismissive of authority, or you're just plain out lazy. And sometimes laziness looks like this. We put it in spiritual terms. Well, I didn't come to work to do my job today. I had to witness all day on the job today. I was studying my Bible all day on the job today. If you're not a pastor, and your job isn't to study the Bible, we call that stealing. Honor your boss for the sake of the gospel. Let me close with an illustration of how this is done. Now, living water, I could give you numerous illustrations, but I don't want to brag on you this morning. We're going to talk about some other Christians. You guys already do this extremely well. You do this extremely well. But let me give you an illustration of how another church has done this. 
uh, to show this uh, from a church plant. So there's a church out in the Twin Cities um, that entered into a competition. So, mid, so this past October, which is uh, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and so uh, Midwestern Seminary decided to hold uh, a time where they wanted to encourage the local pastors by giving them resources and prayer guides. And they decided that, that the seminary decided they were going to give away $10,000 uh, to one local pastor. And so uh, they asked members of churches to write in on behalf of their pastors so they could know which pastor to select. And so about 5,000 pastors and members from churches wrote in to compete to say why their pastor should be selected for this. Uh, and, 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 the, and the designation was that $5,000 was, was to be used so the pastor and his family could go on vacation and have a break from ministry, and other $5,000 was to be used to help with some ministry need that the church needed. And so the guy, this, recently they just announced uh, the winner of the competition, which was a pastor by the name of Pastor McYoung Yang, uh, and he was selected. Uh, he is a church plant leader. His church started in February 2021. And what was interesting about him that stood out was that over 200 people from his church wrote in. And the seminary were blown away by the, the expressions that the members had to say about him. They talked about how much they loved their pastor and appreciated him because of such a great job of how he had been laboring to serve them. And in that way, they honored their pastor, and he was the one who was awarded. And that's one of the ways that a church can honor their elders. So brothers and sisters, what is Paul saying to you today? When an elder is doing his job and doing it well, you should honor them. You should be willing to submit to what they're asking out of respect for God, and as we currently do, seek to provide for them financially. And if you're a person who's in a place of appointment and you have a boss, honor your boss for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. Practical it is and how we are to live out our lives. And I thank you that you know you make, us, make known to us the way that you want us to live in response to what your word teaches. Would you help us to do it? Help us to obey. And I know for some of us, Lord, this is challenging because we don't have bosses who are necessarily uh, make it easy for us to want to honor them. Uh, perhaps the way that they manage their leadership style, the way that they interact with us in the work environment is not good. We can't control them. We can pray for them, but we can't control ourselves. So help us to do what is right even if they're not. Now, Lord, I ask that you to prepare our hearts as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.